invite you to continue reading the story of Palm Sunday with me, picking up in Matthew chapter 1, chapter 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of the donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that what we do not know you would teach us, and what we cannot see you would show us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Who is this? It's a question of identity. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus Messiah that we just sang about? Today begins what we know as Holy Week, and as we journey from Palm Sunday through Easter, we'll travel with Jesus and his disciples on three different journeys, each exploring what it means to see our Savior clearly. Today, we walk with them on the road to Jerusalem. On Friday, we will walk the road through darkness. And then on Easter Sunday, as we gather, we will walk with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Three journeys, all asking the same question. Who is this? And can we really see him clearly? Hosanna to the son of David. That was what the crowd was shouting as they walked towards Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday thousands of years ago. But were they really seeing him clearly? Were they really shouting for the right salvation? Save us now, Jesus Messiah. This is the refrain that we sing together. But are we shouting for the right salvation? As they entered Jerusalem, it says the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. But who is Jesus of Nazareth? If we don't see him clearly, then we can't possibly understand the events that will unfold during the next six days. So let's rewind back to the beginning of Palm Sunday again to set the stage The characters in the Palm Sunday drama are Jesus, of course, he's the star. You have the disciples, you have the blind men, 
You have the crowd that's going with them on the way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. You've got the colt. You can't forget the donkey. plays a very important role. We're going to get to him. You've got the people in the city who ask this question, who is this that's coming? And the day is filled with all sorts of little details. It's like little pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Independently, any one of the pieces doesn't actually tell you that much. But when you put the pieces together and see the picture, it tells you a complete story. In relationship, the pieces all begin to make sense. And there's details that we see in this last miracle that Jesus performs as he heals the blind men. And there's little details that we see as he enters into Jerusalem, how he enters and what he says and what is said about him. And it says in Matthew that all of these details are important because they all weave together to fulfill what had been prophesied about him. And it's important that we get to put these pieces together and see them clearly because even as John writes in this moment of self-reflection as he tells this story, he says, even we didn't understand this while it was happening. Only after Jesus was glorified, only after he was raised from the dead, did we realize what was really going on. If you remember the movie from many years ago, The Usual Suspects, it's like the closing scene in that movie As the suspect leaves and he's cleared of all wrongdoing and the detective then begins to stare at the board that was behind him, piecing together all the little facts from the story. And finally, it comes clear to him. Finally, he sees what he hadn't been able to see. Finally, all the pieces come together and it makes sense. So let's unpack the story and look at some of the details to see clearly what the disciples and the crowd and the people in the city missed on that first Palm Sunday. So the day begins as Jesus and his disciples are heading to Jerusalem. They had spent the previous night in Jericho, which is about 17 miles away from Jerusalem. So it's a long day's walk from Jerusalem to Jericho, from Jericho to Jerusalem. And the road is filled with pilgrims who are heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They're all making this journey together, and as they begin their day's journey, Christ pulls the disciples off to the side of the road, away from the crowds, um, to talk to them for a minute. It's kind of like a pregame motivational speech that a coach might give a football team in the locker room trying to prepare them for what's coming, for what's going to happen to him when they get to Jerusalem, trying to prepare them for what he must do and what they must do. And he begins by telling them again what's going to happen, reminding them of the game plan, reminding them of the goal, reminding them of the process. He's been preparing them for this for almost a year, and this is his final chance to help them see clearly What's about to happen? He's just pulled them aside and he's told them that this road to Jerusalem is going to be for him a road that will lead to death. That this Passover was not going to be like any other Passover that they had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate. 
And throughout this late period of his ministry, he's been revealing himself more and more clearly to the disciples. And now as they begin their journey that day, he makes his most definitive and declarative statement yet. It's the first time he talks to them about the actual mode of execution. And, but what we see is that these deliberate statements that Christ is making don't guarantee understanding or acceptance by the listener. Deliberate statements don't ensure understanding or acceptance because none of us really experience reality for what it is. We all interpret reality. We interpret reality based on the lenses that we look through, based on our experiences. We interpret what we see and what we hear based on what we often want to hear or what we've already decided is being said. And trust me, this is true. Because every Sunday I get up here and I preach exactly one message. But you would think from listening to the comments that I've preached four or five different sermons based on how it's heard by people. Because we all look and we all listen through different lenses. And so Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples, but they either don't hear him or they don't understand him. They don't believe him or they don't want to believe him because it doesn't fit the future picture that they had already painted in their minds. They had this growing expectation of a future they wanted, a growing expectation of this messianic glory which prevented them from hearing and seeing the truth that he was trying to show them, the truth that he was trying to prepare them for that morning as they began their journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. And they were looking into the future, and they may have been seeing the right destination, but their idea about what the destination was blinded them to the path that must be traveled to get them there. And Jesus tells them he's going to be arrested, beaten, killed. And what's their response? To start arguing about who's going to get the best job in the new Jesus administration. Or who's going to get to sit on the right or the left. They start jockeying for position. They're preoccupied with privilege in status, in power. It's like the jockeying that we see anytime a new president or governor is going to take office. You have all the aides, all the people who are part of the campaigns, all the big donors jockeying for position. Who's going to get this post? Who's going to get that job? See the news stories and the infighting. That's what the disciples are doing. They basically wanted Jesus to write them a blank check. Mark says it this way. He says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, said, Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's like they wanted to order off an a la carte menu. Give us what we want. Is that how we see God? Is that how we pray to God? We want nice communities and good schools for our kids to go to. 
We want happy families and churches that cater to our preferences and desires. We want good jobs and good health. We want peace and safety and justice. But are we willing to walk the path it takes to get there? The path it takes to get there for us and for others? The crowd is leaving Jericho. There's a large crowd on the road following them. Pilgrims traveling with them to Jerusalem for the Passover. Pilgrims who knew who Jesus was because they're traveling from the part of the country where he had spent the majority of his ministry years. And as they're migrating towards the city, preparing themselves to celebrate the Passover, they're looking back at the Exodus, remembering that first Passover when God saved them from slavery. But they're looking forward to the Messiah to this coming kingdom. And like the disciples, they have this growing expectation of Jesus and what he's going to do. This expectation that he's going to overthrow the Roman rule and once again free them from the bondage of government tyranny. Their messianic fervor, their nationalistic pride, prevented them from seeing clearly what Jesus had been preparing themselves for. And it was going to prevent them from seeing clearly what was going to transpire over the next six days as they went to Jerusalem. They needed to have their vision cleared up. So if you're Jesus in the midst of this crowd, in the midst of your disciples who are just not understanding what you're trying to tell them, What do you do? Well, maybe an object lesson will work. So as they're leaving Jericho, they encounter these two blind men on the side of the road. And the blind men, they clearly know who Jesus is. I don't know if it's because Jesus traveled this road often as he was going to see his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who lived in Bethany, which is always on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. But for whatever reason, they knew who he was. And so as they hear him approaching with the crowd, they shout out to him, Lord, Son of David. In other words, they're shouting out, Messiah. They believed who he was. It's actually the first usage of this specific term, Lord, Son of David, in the scriptures. And it's the first time throughout his entire ministry that he doesn't shy away from being called the Messiah, that he doesn't tell whoever it is to be quiet. It's the first public proclamation of him as Messiah that he's willing to embrace because he's trying to help the crowd see clearly. The men were physically blind, but they weren't spiritually blind. And what are the two blind blind men call out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Let's not miss it. They didn't ask for healing. If you're blind and Jesus is coming, wouldn't you call out, Lord, Son of David, heal me? No, they called out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. They asked for mercy. And they're willing to let Christ define 
what mercy is. They're willing to let Christ define what's best for them. Is that what we do? Do we call out, God, have mercy on us? Or do we call out, God, give me this laundry list of things that I really want that are going to make me happy? I remember when my older son was still alive, people would often tell my wife and I, they would say, we're praying that your son would be healed. And there's nothing wrong with that prayer per se. But was that really a prayer saying to God, whatever your will be, be done. Lord, have mercy on me. And we see this contrast between what James and John ask for and what the blind men ask for. James and John, who have been walking with Christ for three years at this point, they come and they say, give us what we want. But the blind men, they shout out, just have mercy on us. And as they shout out, have mercy on us, what does the crowd do? The crowd rebukes them. The crowd, it's just, they're annoyed that these two blind beggars would interrupt their procession. They're opposed to Jesus even spending a second of paying attention to them, opposed to him doing anything because they're so busy basking in the glory of Christ, basking in the glory of what they think they're going to Jerusalem for, that they have no concern for the compassion of Christ. They have no concern for these two blind men by the side of the road. In essence, they're saying, Jesus, don't be distracted by these poor beggars. Keep your eyes on us. Keep your focus on us. Do what we want you to do for us. Don't worry about them. The crowd admonishes the blind men, saying to them, you're not important. You're not important enough for him. You're not good enough for him. You're not clean enough for him. They viewed them as a nuisance. They didn't want them to cause a delay in their journey towards the celebration because the crowd thought they were going someplace different than where Christ was actually going. The crowd didn't see the plan clearly. The crowd didn't see the process clearly. And so Christ wants to show them once more, take one more opportunity to help clear their vision up. And we... We live in the midst of a community that's calling out, Lord, have mercy on us. Whether they recognize that that is their cry or not, that is the cry, Lord, have mercy on us. And what's our response to the cries? Are they a nuisance to us? Are we bothered by them? Are we too concerned that we're going to have to give up our own preferences? We're going to have to give up Christ's focus on us in order to focus on a community that's calling out for his mercy? Christ sees one last opportunity 
to show the disciples and the crowd what's really important. One last opportunity to try and help them see clearly. And so he stops the procession and he calls out to the blind men, what do you want? They cry out to him for mercy and he responds in just complete compassion and grace. What do you want? We want our sight, they say. We want to be able to see clearly. Because the blind men were the only ones on the road that day that recognized they couldn't see. And they believed that Christ could do something about it. And so they ask him. Are we like the blind men or are we like the disciples in the crowd? Do we understand that we can't see clearly? Do we believe that we need help to see clearly? Are we asking God to help us see clearly? Asking him to help us see his purposes and his plan and his goals clearly? Are we like the blind men? Lord, have mercy on us. Or are we like James and John? God, just give me what I want. It says Jesus had compassion on them. And he went over and he touched their eyes. If you've ever had somebody touch your eyes like that, you know that that is an intimate connection. And he comes over in compassion and he touches them. Even in the midst of this determined movement towards the cross, Christ has time to touch the blind man on the side of the road. Christ has time to try and help the disciples in the crowd see things more clearly. Because he knows that if they can't see clearly, they won't understand the events of the week that is coming. The cross is critical. It's where he was going. Because without the cross, none of it matters. But if they couldn't see him clearly, if they couldn't see the purpose clearly, if the cross is obscured, then the cross wouldn't matter either. Jesus wants them to see clearly. He wants to give them this one last object lesson. He redefines greatness for them once again, saying greatness is not found in power and position, guys, but greatness is found in service. Greatness is found in compassion. And no one's immune from this, not even the Messiah. He practices what he preaches. He sets the example for them to follow. And so he heals the blind men, and as Mark's gospel says, he tells them, go, you've been healed. But instead of going, they come, they follow In Luke's gospel, he says, they received their sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when the people around them saw the blind men praising God, they also praised God. The the blind man's response to what Jesus has done for him, to Jesus' compassion and mercy on them, is to praise him. They begin worshiping him, and their worship is contagious. As they worship The crowd around them starts worshiping too. And what we see as we watch the story that the blind men actually become the catalyst 
for this entire Palm Sunday worship procession. This crowd that had rebuked them for calling out to Jesus now joins them in praising him. They've quickly changed their tune. But did they miss the message? They break into this spontaneous response of worship. But are they worshiping the compassion of Christ or the power of Christ? Hosanna, save us now. Give us some of that power that we just saw you give them. And this procession continues for about 15 miles until it says they approach Bethpage and Bethany, which were a set of towns about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And as they're approaching the towns, he stops again and he gives two of his disciples some instructions. He says, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything, do you say that? The Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. Go to the town and get me a colt. They've been walking all day. They've covered about 15 miles. Was Jesus all of a sudden tired? No. More pieces of the puzzle that need to be put together. It's actually the only time recorded into the Gospels that he's ever recorded riding any animal. And it's probably likely the only time he actually did ever ride an animal because in that society, only the very rich would ever have animals to ride. Everybody else would walk. And Jesus, in his status, would almost certainly have never ridden an animal before this point in his life. He's not tired. He's intentionally making a point. He's intentionally putting the pieces of the puzzle together to fulfill the prophecies. He's establishing his authority as their king. Because in that day and age, one of the things kings could do was to take resources from others temporarily for their purposes. So he says, go and get me the donkey. And if anyone asks, tell them the Lord needs it. It's a statement of his authority. It's the only time in Matthew's gospel that he refers to himself as Lord. Others had used that term as a term of respect for him as a teacher. But it's the only time he uses it for himself. Tell them the Lord needs it. I have authority to do this. Tell them to send the animals. And what we see is he's recreating David's return to Jerusalem in humility and peace, riding on a donkey. He's recreating Solomon's entrance into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey for his coronation. He's recreating scenes for them that they would recognize, putting the pieces of the puzzle together so they can begin to understand who he is. And the cult's important because the cult was an animal of peace. When a king would get on a colt and ride a colt, it meant they were coming for peaceful purposes. They were going to come for war. They would be riding on a horse. But when they come on a donkey, they're coming in peace. And so by riding the donkey into the city, what he's doing is he's extending his grace towards them. 
He's not coming for judgment. He's coming as their servant. He's coming to extend grace. Later, he'll return to judge. But now, he's coming to save. And the fact that it's a young colt is an interesting little nugget. Because it's a young colt that likely had never been broken. It had never been ridden before. So they bring this colt out to them, and they throw their coats on top of it, and they lift Christ up onto it, and he rides this colt peacefully into the city. If you've ever seen a donkey or a horse get broken to be ridden, it's usually a pretty wild event. You've got to break them because they don't want to be ridden. And as they lift Jesus onto this colt, what it shows is his command over creation because the cult is subdued under him. The cult finds peace from its creator being on top of it. And as he approaches the city, he weeps because he knows they don't understand. He knows they're not seeing any of this clearly. He's presenting himself to them publicly as their king for the first time. Previously, when they had tried to make him king, he had refused because they were trying to make him into the king that they wanted. But now he arrives into Jerusalem riding on the colt to become the king that they need. And they have no idea what's going on. The disciples come back with the colt. They lay their coats on it. They lift Christ onto it. And the crowd goes wild. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The procession is continuing at fever pitch. The crowd is pressing on to the Passover they expected. But the cross that they were missing. Because their path to the cross was being obscured by the robes and the branches and their celebration of what they wanted and not what they needed. As they entered Jerusalem, it says, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Do we see him clearly? Do we portray him to others clearly? Do we see his plan and his purposes clearly? Do we live out his plan and his purposes clearly? If we don't see him clearly, then we can't possibly understand the events that will unfold during the rest of this Holy Week. The disciples didn't understand. John admits it as much in his own gospel. We didn't understand. We couldn't see it. The crowd didn't understand. Same crowd that cheered his arrival on Sunday cheered for his crucifixion on Friday. Are we enthralled by his power? 
Are we enthralled by what we think he can do for us? Or are we enthralled by his compassion? Are we enthralled by his grace pouring out on us? Or are we enthralled by using him to judge others? As we walk out of these doors and into our communities and our cities, are they stirred by our proclamation of Hosanna? Are they stirred and compelled to ask us, who is this? Who is this Jesus that you speak of? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so prone to seeking after our own desires. We are so absorbed with self. I repent before you that we so often do not see you clearly. And I pray for your forgiveness for us. I pray that you would help us see you clearly. That we, you would help us express you clearly. That you living in us would be so clear to others that they would be compelled to ask, who is this? I pray that we would seek after the Messiah we need. Thank you for your grace and your compassion pouring out for us. In Jesus' name, amen.